and welcome to another edition of Book Talk. I'm Stephen Ussery, and I'm delighted to welcome Michael Ferris-Smith back to the program today. Michael is a novelist and has appeared on Book Talk for his books, Rivers, Desperation Road, The Fighter, and Blackwood. His other titles are Nick and the Hands of Strangers. Today we'll be talking about his latest, Salvage This World, which is published by Little Brown. Michael, Salvage This World is set along the Gulf Coast in Louisiana and Mississippi. Hurricane season is now year-round. This sounds a lot like the prelude to the setting from your novel 10 years ago, Rivers. It is a prelude to the setting of Rivers. You know, I always thought I would come back to Rivers in some way, but I didn't think it would be as a sequel, and I didn't really think it would be in that immensely drenched, almost dystopian landscape of Rivers. I thought it would maybe be indirectly, either through a character that maybe was in Rivers or, or some setup like that. And it just then when I had the idea for... And I had this image of this young woman staring at the storm with a kid on her hip in the opening moments of Salvage This World. I just had a feeling that that this was it. I knew we were going to be along the Mississippi-Louisiana line again. Um, and I just felt like, well, what if this is 10 years before Rivers? And I think that's pretty much how it feels. We're 8 or 10 years before the, the line and the complete abandonment of the region and just complete lawlessness and, and kind of chaos. I think we see in Salvage This World the creeping up to rivers in South Mississippi and South Louisiana towns that we see now that are slowly becoming more dilapidated, less populated, really like any type of infrastructure or economy. So, yeah, I just kind of knew that was it. Felt good. I liked the idea of it. And I really liked kind of tying those two novels together, at least not tying them together, but having a couple that live kind of in the same realm you know that happened with Blackwood and the fighter where I had a couple characters cross over and I really liked how that felt and then the other part of that was it's the same town essentially as Desperation Road so it felt like it kind of fell into the the universe so to speak too in, in a couple of ways. With your previous novel, Nick, which looked at Fitzgerald's character, Nick Carraway, before his time in The Great Gatsby, and you, as you mentioned with Blackwood, uh, being the kid that's dropped off at the beginning of Blackwood, mm -hmm. and now this is a prelude to Rivers, what about going back to these existing stories but beforehand attracts you to investigate those things? I don't know. With Nick, that's just such a hard thing to even explain how it came to be. And not hard to explain. Like, I know how it came to be, but that's something you never expect to happen, I don't think. I think prequels, to me, are in some way more interesting than sequels or extensions of stories. Probably because when I set out to write a novel, I don't really have anything more than what you see in the opening couple pages. Like, I just kind of jump off and start going, and then the rest of the story is me trying to figure out who these people are and where they've come from and what has impacted them and what has driven them to be the way they are. So I guess that's kind of working in my head whenever I'm watching anything or reading anything or even considering anything. I hadn't really thought about it that much, but I, I do. I'm I mean, one of the things that led me to be a writer was I was really interested in what brings a person to be where they are, particularly when you see hardship or someone who is really down on their luck or has suffered some type of trauma or who just is part of that population who just can't quite seem to get a break or get it together, or they've shot themselves in the foot, too, in some way. Like, how do we get here with them? I mean, that that's one of the things just about human nature, and I think human existence, that kind of led me toward writing in the first place and storytelling. So I guess this kind of notion of what came before is a little bit part of my artistic makeup. 
I think a couple of times before you've told me that, you know, that novel starts with that, just an image Mm -hmm. more so than anything else. So how do you know when you've got an image that's going to translate into words? When I cannot stop thinking about it. And I, you know, I don't necessarily, when I feel like something's hit me, I don't go right to it. I just kind of like to see if it stays with me. I had the first sentence for Salvage This World written for a month, just that very first sentence written down. And I felt like it was the image that was in me, the image I couldn't take my eyes off of. And it felt like it was a loaded image, too. Like there was really something there. Like there was almost a novel in that opening or in that sentence. But, I, you know, I kind of give it the test of time. And I see if it stays with me, I feel like, okay, this is what I'm going to commit to and where I'm going. Because sometimes they don't stay with you. And you think you have a cool idea, and 48 hours later you can't remember it. And, and that's good, you know. It's the one that you start thinking about, maybe even dream about, when you know, okay, this feels like the next year of my life. You mentioned characters with difficulties earlier, and Book Talk listeners probably know that my favorite quote was from Larry Brown when he was on the show, and he says, you take your characters and you load them up with problems. (laughs) That's right. Absolutely. You know, I've learned a lot from Larry, not just through his own work, but through his interviews and the things he had to say about writing. And along those same lines, he had this, I believe he called it sandbagging. He would say, my notion of sandbagging when it comes to writing is I just want to pile as much on my characters as I possibly can, like you're stacking up a bunch of sandbags, and see how they're going to react. And that has stuck with me, clearly. I mean, 20 years later, that's still always at the forefront of my mind when I'm writing a story and thinking about characters and um, how they're going to be and how tough are they and what are the consequences of standing up or crumbling, either one. So what are the problems facing Jessie when Salvage This World begins? Oh, man. (laughs) She's got a few. You know, one of the things that hit me about Salvage This World in the very first few pages was that she was alone, but she hadn't been alone for long, but that she was estranged from her father. And that hit me the moment she picks up the phone and calls Wade when she's had to take off running with the boy. She makes it to a gas station. She has no idea what to do, nobody to call, and she drops a quarter in and dials and when Wade answers, or you hear the phone pick up, she says, Daddy. You know, she doesn't say Wade or Dad or any of that. She says, Daddy. And we all know that holds a very different connotation. She and Wade have been apart for several years. He doesn't even know she has a kid. And the flip side of that is when he picks up the phone and he hears her voice and she says, Daddy, like that, he immediately lets all the anxiety and frustration and anger he has over the things that drove them apart fall because he knows she's in trouble. And I knew then this is going to be about a father and a daughter, and it scared me a little bit because I have two daughters of my own, and I'd never written about fathers and daughters before. My uh, first reaction was to back away from it. I'm not sure I want to do this, but then I reminded myself those things that make us uncomfortable and like you really feel emotional about are probably things you need to be writing about. And in chapter five, the time when this conversation is getting ready to happen and then when it's happening, you do something very unusual and you don't have kind of beats that separate points of views because you're, you've established two characters and, and they're meeting now for the first time that we get to see. And in the same paragraph, you're going back and forth on their points of view. Mm -hmm. And I was just wondering why you decided to take that approach and what you were going for with that. 
it's a stream of consciousness thing to where I just let myself be free with it and kind of like almost in a film where you see like this cut back and forth of these two people in this same moment, what they're doing on each end of the of the thing, how they're reacting differently. It wasn't anything I necessarily calculated to do. It happened in the moment, and I really, I really loved it. And, you know, I know that I'll break rules, whatever those rules are, with my writing sometimes and with points of view and kind of inner things like that. But I really loved it, and quite honestly, my editor read it, and he didn't, he didn't blink either. He he thought it was really interesting. You know, I'm glad you point that out. This is one of my absolute, I think, favorite passages I've ever written. And that kind of back and forth between the two characters in that moment, and the things they're feeling, and just the kind. I really think it encompasses the whirlwind that they're in too. It has almost this spinning, I think, kind of connotation to it, which they're both are real. They are both really spinning in that moment. And if it captures them both in that insane way, whether it's technically correct or not, I'm not real worried about it. I hope it adds kind of to the dreamlike feeling of it all. Well, as you said, kind of a whirlwind. I mean, it because there is so much nervousness in these two characters who love each other but cannot make them say sorry to each other for everything that they've done to each other (laughs) over that time. And they're just trying to hold their stuff together and try to make a way forward when their instincts are, are going against them. Yeah. They're both really stubborn. And I I think anybody who has been a father or a mother and has had a stubborn kid and they are stubborn themselves knows the things that come with that. You know, too, they have both suffered the same tragedy affected them both immensely, you know, and, Wade dealt with it in a way that he really regrets, which affected the child he was raising. And she regrets it, too, in the way that he's handled it. I think their thing is they're a lot alike. And we kind of know how that typically turns out, especially in um, tense situations. People who are alike react to it the same way. And if those aren't necessarily the best ways to react, then you're kind of at an impasse. Like, what happens now? You start creating a feedback loop. Yeah, exactly. So, of course, one of the questions we're going to have is, and that Wade has, who's the father of young Jace, her son, mm-hmm. and where is he? I'm glad you bring that up because every novel surprises you in some way. Like there's something happens or a character development or something that you're just not prepared for or you don't see coming. Like when it starts, by the time it's over, it's very different. Holt was that for me. When I introduced Holt into the story, Jesse's significant other and Jace's father, who's kind of gone missing and she's on the run with, you know, the way he's picked up and found in the middle of the night and dragged out to uh, the old man's house. I thought it'd be this almost like really dark, really intense, kind of brooding, almost like nature of evil bad guy in the thing. And his transformation along the way really surprised me when he becomes something different his story the things he thinks and feels and i think you know the way the entire story is kind of unfolded through him and his own experiences and the choices he's made that was a big surprise to me i really loved holt you know i think he became human to me in a way i wasn't really anticipating when i started and i always loved that you know i think holt is instead of being that dark thing we don't want to look at or kind of aren't even sure if it's really out there I think he's someone, you know, we, we've seen or we know or we, we can believe is walking around with these with these things kind of chasing him. Now, there are several characters, Jesse and Wade and Holt and later Holt's boss, that we get more information about their past later on in the book. So when you kind of decide to deploy their past as part of the book, how do you make that decision where that goes? 
Well, you know what I started doing with close to the final revisions of Rivers is I would get some notes and like, I remember like Mari Posa needed some more development. So I wanted to write some more about her and there were maybe one or two other spaces. I would open up that manuscript and I would start scrolling through looking for where to put it. 280, 300 pages. And I just, I got so aggravated with that. I feel like, you know, it was really eating up my time and I couldn't really make sense of where I wanted things. So I remember I opened up a blank document. I said, you know, I'm just going to write more about Mariposa and her background and her family in New Orleans. And then I'll worry about it then where it goes. Because if I just write it, it'll figure out where it goes itself. You know, you'll know it. And I did that on the revisions of Rivers. Every time I had to do something, I would open up a brand new document, leave the weight of the entire story over here closed up, and just write something new and fresh. And I really loved the way that felt. It felt really light. It felt like... It was a, a blank canvas, something you're almost doing like, not for fun is not the right reason, but maybe a right thing, but maybe it was for fun. But it just felt like there was air in the room when I was doing it that way. I like the way it felt so much. That's how I've worked ever since. Like in writing every other novel after that, I'll get started. I'll get about 20, 25 pages down the road. And then when I go in in the morning, whether it's a continuation of what's coming, or whether it's in the middle of the night, I've had a thought about something that happens on page 12 and wouldn't be cool if this, this, and this kind of went with that too. I open up a blank document, I write for the day, and then I take it and I open up the big document and I stick it wherever I feel like it needs to go or where it belongs. And I've been working like that for six novels now. And I love the way it feels, you know, it's really takes things anxiety out of it for me which any anything you can do to rid yourself of the anxiety of this process is you need to be doing i also think it's made me more impulsive and willing to try something or do something in that moment versus feeling the weight of where it is in the book or whatever so any of the flashback things or memory things that you see if they weren't written right in that moment you know they're possibly written in a day where i just feel the freedom to give holt some more or give Jesse some more. There's a you give Jesse and Wade a moment from their childhood that's really going to fit. And I just I just write it, and then I just open up the document and I decide where it goes, almost like a puzzle. I just use the word freedom, but that it does liberate me too to go in that day and feel free to work on whatever has kind of struck me, whether it's a chronological next chronological bit, or whether it's I feel like I've had some type of notion of something somebody may have said to somebody 10 years ago that plays into what's happening now. And I can go write that and then just pop it in there. So that's kind of the process of all that. It's kind of appropriate that this happened with rivers because it's like kind of water finding its level and a, a river cutting a new channel. That's very well said. That's right. I really do love the way that feels. I don't know that I can work any other way now. And I, I don't want to. I think, too, that's why my chapters are short, to be honest. Because I go in and I work for the day and then I kind of leave it where it is. Even if I, uh, you know, I shoot for a thousand words a day. And when I get that, even if I feel like I know what the next two chapters are, two big things are to happen, I just, I, I leave it and I, I don't pr- press it that day. And I just go and kind of let it, let my subconscious have it for the rest of the day and then walk in the next morning. So I think too, you know, my chapters are, are shorter and I feel like they're pretty tight, and uh, that probably has a lot to do with that process also. I've heard some writers say they'll leave off in the middle of a sentence mm-hmm. so they know when they come back the next morning they will be able to get something on the page because wow. they have to complete that sentence. That's not bad, man. Whatever works, whatever you can do to keep the engine moving. 
Now, since this is prior to the lawlessness that is in rivers where the United States government has essentially said you're on your own if you're below this line, there are still bits of infrastructure left in this area. There's a semblance of law enforcement. But like Jesse, when you're outside the law, you better have a good reason and an expectation that the law can help you or will help you if you contact them. Yeah, you better not be wasting anybody's time because resources are stretched. The numbers are few. You should be able to point and say, this person did this at this moment and I need your help. And they can't do that right now. You know, What Jesse and Holt are dealing with is beyond them. And it's in shadow and it's in silhouette. And they're not even sure who or what. So in a way, they are. On, I mean, they are on their own. You know, It wouldn't do them much good to go to the sheriff because what are they going to tell them? You know, or go to the cops, what are they going to tell them? They can't tell them anything. It sounds almost like they're making it up to just have a little fun. You said this is the first time you wrote father and daughter dynamic, but abandonment by parents is a big theme, whether it's through death or leaving the family or, or whatever in your books. That happens quite a bit. Mm-hmm. Why do you think that's one of those concepts that you come back to? It's really heartbreaking to me. And I think people who have dealt with that and suffered that, they carry around weight and they carry around shadows that I think people who haven't suffered that can make no sense out of or really don't understand. And I think it affects them on a day-to-day, even hour-to-hour basis, the relationships they're in, the things they think about, the way they interpret things. I've talked about this before. My wife is a social worker. I've been married to a social worker for 24 years. (laughs) It will be 24 but she has particularly worked in cases of children and, and with foster children and things like that. And um, to say I haven't been impacted by that would be ridiculous. There's way more out there than we all think there is like that. You know, those kids and teenagers who grow up to be adults who have suffered that and, you know, have a hard time knowing their place in the world or even knowing who their people are in the world. You know what I mean? It's a lot. It's a, there's a, it can cause a tremendous void when you don't ever end up with that family, you know, blood or otherwise. When I think about writing, kind of going back to what Larry was talking about and other writers that I've learned from, the kind of the harder and deeper and more intense you can push a character, I think the better. And I guess subconsciously that's in my head. And, you know, I think my eyes are open to it also. I think I, I notice these things just because I kind of have been, been in the conversation with uh, my wife's work. I think it feels a little heavy on me, you know, and having daughters of my own, too. The questions that come up constantly when you hear about things like that or see things like that is how in the hell could anybody walk out on their own child or hurt their own child or whatever? So whether it is later through, you know, someone passing away or just never having it, that's an emotional thing for me to think about and consider. So I guess that's why we keep kind of we see it, you know, in, in my work. You frequently write about people who are on the margins, Mm -hmm. who have tough lives in ways that most of us can't even imagine. But then at times you heighten that even. You know, you talk about the the loading people up like Larry Brown said, but you even get to the point where you can start to introduce a few supernatural elements Mm -hmm. into what they have to deal with. Yeah. Well, that's been an interesting thing. I think it started with Blackwood, you know. Clearly it started with Blackwood. Kind of world-building thing where... uh, you know, there's the kudzu, and there's these whispers, and there's these voices, and are they real or are they not? Because to me, that's the scary stuff where you're not sure if if it's actually legit, you know, or not. Or are we just hearing things or not? When, at the same time, there's a very real thing doing the work. And if you could find it and put your hands on it, 
you could save yourself or save whoever, you know. In Blackwood, there's a very real person doing the work, whether it be through the voices that are, you know, could be mental illness or whatever, like, or even maybe a little supernatural, maybe a little ghost haunted, you know. But at the end of the day, there's flesh and blood doing the things. And if you could get away from it or find it, maybe you could, you know, help fix the problem. And Salvage had that feeling to me also, too. You know, I think there's a little bit of it in Rivers, too, just in this kind of otherworldly feel. And Salvage had it, too. You know, (laughs) when Jesse has to take off running on page one and she grabs those keys that he said, make sure you grab these keys if you ever have to start running. I had no idea what those keys were. That was really just a spur of the moment. She runs back through the house and she grabs three or four things. And one of those things was she grabbed the keys that he said, grab. There was no intent for that whatsoever. It just kind of popped out. And now I knew or I felt like this is going to be something, you know. And the other thought was, as we kept going through the novel, I'm like, these keys better pay off because you were leaning on them. And it was, I don't know, I was getting 200, 220 pages in this thing. I still didn't know what the keys (laughs) led to. But all I knew was this better be good. Perhaps that kind of lent itself to going down that road a little bit also, kind of stretching into a darkness that might be even beyond what we already know. But, I mean, you could have had it like a MacGuffin, like the Maltese Falcon. (laughs) Of course, yeah. (laughs) Oh, man, a million things went through my mind. The one thing I knew I didn't want it to be about was money, you know, or treasure. We've seen that done a lot, but I never really knew what it was going to be. Pretty much until the moment you figure it out, that's pretty much when I figured it out. Well, I mean, money was one of the big drivers in Rivers. Yeah, it was. The rumors of the hidden money, you know, that was uh, outlaws down there with their shovels and backhoes trying to dig around the casinos in, in the storms, you know. That that lent itself to what I thought was actually some fun, you know. It felt like the Wild West. These keys, I knew they were serious, and I knew uh, they were meaningful, and I'm just glad it turned out that way <laughs> so I didn't have to start over. <laughs> With these elements, this book could have been made into a horror novel, Mm -hmm. but you kept it very much grounded and centered on that father-daughter relationship with Wade and Jesse. Mm -hmm. I mean, some of those last moments with Wade and Jesse, to me, are some of my favorite moments. They begin the process of healing kind of when things are the worst, which I really love that, you know. I think there are moments when you could probably look at it and say, this is over for them. They've just got to make it through this day, and then they'll be gone again, and things are never going to change. But, you know, I do for all the darkness and bleakness and desperation you see in my work, I do believe in that little light at the end of the tunnel. And I do believe that we're there. The characters are still reaching and hoping for things, you know, and that they do, I believe, begin to heal um, was really important for me, you know. Um, Again, I think it goes back to writing about fathers and daughters and just, you know, thinking about my own life. And no matter how bad things may get, Whatever may happen, you like to think that you'll be able to heal it with her at some point, somehow. Now, back to Holt, who is Jesse's man. When we meet him, he's in a bad way in pretty much every way. (laughs) Yeah, when we meet him, he is in a bad way in pretty much every way. Which I think goes back to, just like the keys, when when Holt walks in and he's in in the way that he is, you know, my radar is going, there's a lot to dive into. With him, which I think as a writer or, or, or as an artist of any kind, that's what you want. When you look at your subject and you think, man, I have got a lot to unpack with this character or with this subject or with this image. And he is bad in a bad way. 
in every way. And I think, too, that goes back to why I was surprised by how he turned out. Because when he shows up, that's when he showed up for me. And I thought, this is nothing but trouble. And I, again, I, it just goes back to, I don't want anybody to be flat. You know, that would have been very flat. Nobody's all bad all the time or all good all the time. And I think some of the best compliments I get is when people mention, like, the back, you know, who, what, whoever they're, like, stereotypical bad people or bad guys are in my novels. They're like, well, there was a moment when I really feel sorry for that person. I find sympathy for that person. And to me, that goes back to the creating them as humans. And I feel like I've done something right. And Holt was the same way. I felt like there was a lot to dive into. I dove into it. And I really think Holt, in some ways, has become one of the uh, bigger projects I've had. I, I would compare it to um, Mariposa and Rivers, actually. When we meet her, she's trying to choke the life out of Cohen with a um, cord from a lawnmower and stealing his Jeep and leaving him for dead in the water. But I knew then she was going to play a tremendous role in this, but that wasn't going to be, that was only her beginning, you know. And that that was kind of a challenge for me. Like, how do I take her now and make her something very heartfelt and serious to this story? And I think Holt was kind of the same challenge. Another character who can kind of play into this possible horror orientation of the book is Elzer. And she is terrifying. And like good movie monsters, you use her sparingly. Yeah. Man, I tell you, Elsa was, uh, you know, she's 5'2", 85 pounds, probably 60 years old, probably smoked about 10,000 cigarettes in her life, just has that that look, you know. She is commanding, and she's drop-dead serious, too. It was really interesting to take a character of that stature and make her into this really foreboding, intimidating character. But also with the ability to manipulate and to sing whatever song she needs to sing to get what she wants, like any good con man or con woman can do. There's no shortage of those kinds of people. But I, I really loved that she was uh, almost looked like a little old woman you could pick up and put in your pocket if you needed to, but at the same time, you actually better not get within arm's length of her. But when we learned about her background, she said, you know, she could have used some parental abandonment in her life. Yeah, I, I wouldn't <laughs> might have, Yeah, that might have helped. Again, that goes back to creating these moments for these characters in, in their lives to find out why they've come to be what they are. And we know that we find out that Elser, as a child and as a young teenager, begins to learn how to manipulate people to get what she wants, largely out of survival. I mean, totally out of survival. We shouldn't really put it any other way. To where she even comes to believe at that age she has this capacity and this ability to do that to where she can just set out on her own and these are the gifts and these are the things from this awful existence I'm living with this woman, not even really pretending to be much of a mother at all. But just seeing the seed being planted, seeing the genesis of this, so that now when you see Elser riding around in this hearse, and commanding people to bring their offering into tent revival and bring whatever dollar they have in their pocket, you know, food be damned, rent be damned, you get an idea that it was not something she just thought of sitting around a few years ago, but this is part of her nature. The circumstances have played into her strengths for sure. Mm -hmm. And you talk about people being drawn to God's judgment mm -hmm. in the story and that he finds us lacking. Do you think people actually think that of themselves or are they thinking that that's about everyone else around them? 
Oh, man. That's a good question. My experience with it is they think it's about everybody else around them, that they're going to be just fine. I mean, I don't know how many times did I hear growing up in church and from the people who go to church and just, just kind of always hanging out there in the air that, well, if you do this, you're going to hell. I mean, I still can't quite figure out how anybody could say that to anybody, especially a kid, mm-hmm. you know, uh, as you're trying to scare people, fear of God, whatever you want to call it. But, I mean, this is something that we see constantly. Thank God for social media so that we get to really hear what people think all the time now, right? I was being sarcastic, by the way. <laughs> I heard that growing up, and I've heard it all my life, and those people don't believe it's about them. I can't imagine pointing at anybody and saying, well, if you do that or if you don't stop, you're going to go to hell. Like, what about the two dozen sins I've committed in the last hour, you know, in terms of telling a white lie or judgment or, or like, whatever? Like, there's there's no degree of these things in in the Sermon on the Mount, they're pretty much all lined up equal. So uh, the I think those people, death. what's that? The wages, the wages of, of sin, sin is death. death. It doesn't say what sin, you know, just sin. And I really do think they think it's about everybody else. I'm not the problem. Everybody else is. That's my knee-jerk reaction to it. And I think it works. Elzer is preaching about this diffuse they, yeah. these who wish you ill to yeah. her congregants. And that really does feel like our current political discourse in which we're try to other people. When I was going through those passages, um, I'm like, this feels very on the nose for for now. Especially even like going back to the COVID thing, who's listening to who? You know, when science and is telling you one thing and very reputable, legitimate people are telling you one thing and you're taking a horse dewormer because somebody with another microphone told you that'd be cool. Or I know it says this, 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 this. Well, I don't want to believe that. I want to believe this person. We could even go further with math, with the election. Well, I don't know about this math. This math isn't right. Send me some money so I can help fix this math. <laughs> and people do it. Like they they are trying to change. Them. These numbers aren't right. Send me some money and we'll sue some people and we'll get the right numbers. I mean, that is Elser in the Temple of Pain and Glory in a nutshell, to be honest. And it's an old trick, man. It's, it's not a new thing. It's an old trick, and it works. It's them. It's not us. It's them. Now, for an operation of people teaching the old-time religion, they are giving the Lord many opportunities to forgive them of sins which they commit every day. Yes, they are. Another convenience lapse in... Because they are drinking, womanizing, and doing all of that yeah. while they're on the road. Yeah. Yeah, another convenient lapse in recognition, but... I mean, even so, like, you get the feeling that they could roll up, set up this tent, go into their show. The local sheriff could walk up and expose them for what they are, and the offering plate would probably double. I even think there's mention in there of when Elsa, the deeper she goes, and kind of the more off the rocker her she goes, particularly when she starts talking about this holy child, how the offering doubled. And she's just becoming more outlandish, and the more outlandish she becomes the more people fill her pockets. They say about you know people nowadays that they believe some politician and then the person's exposed to be a liar, that the thing that will hurt them the most is making them feel like they've been duped. Mm-hmm. They will defend that person to the end because that feeling of being fooled is so terrible. Yeah. They try to avoid it at any cost. 
Yeah, I've heard that too. And I'm actually listening to a podcast that deals with that right now. It's called Chameleon. And it's about this guy who was a stage hypnotist back in the 70s. And when that kind of ran out, he just went into scam after scam after scam, including like a fake university where he said you could get your degree in 25 days. And the millions and hundreds of millions of dollars he made from people and how, you know, once he was exposed, I mean, he was exposed multiple times, but people kept falling for whatever it was he was selling. You know, the people that they talked to who were willing to talk about it later and say the biggest thing was I just felt like a fool, you know, and I didn't want to admit that I'd been duped. And I just wanted to believe that this was right, you know, no matter how wrong I knew it to be. And I do think that plays a big part of it. Nobody wants to feel like they've been hustled. You know, it makes you feel stupid. Nobody likes to feel stupid. It makes you feel embarrassed. You know, you don't want other people to find out about it. So, yeah, it's certainly part of that psychology. It seems like we just don't want to admit that, and this is for people of all persuasions, that there's a price to be paid. Yeah. And that everything has a consequence and everything has a price. And people are just not willing to admit that, you know, drinking our our single-use plastic bottles doesn't have a cost, but it does. Yeah. This reminds me of a conversation I had once when I was back when I was teaching at Auburn University a long time, my first teaching job. I had really smart students. You could tell she thought about things quite a bit because she asked a lot of great questions. And I, I can't remember what we were reading. Oh, I remember it was The Stranger by Camus. Or Marceau just doesn't want to do anything. He thinks you can just go through life and never make any decisions and there's no repercussions or consequences. And she asked if I thought that was possible that you could just be apathetic and just never really make any choices or never pick a side. and No choice is a choice. It's exactly what I said. I'm like, no, because even your apathy is a decision, and your apathy is going to have a consequence. You know? You're not choosing to behave in a certain way or choosing to behave in a certain way. It's impossible for it to not have a consequence on the world around you or the people around you. you know? It's just life. I mean, that's what it is. You know, it'd be nice if there was some type of system we could plug into like that. I wouldn't want to do it, but I'm sure there are people who would be, but it's just not its not possible to be alive and to be human with a spirit and soul and not affect other people with what you're doing or not doing. So why do you think white Southerners, the group that we're part of, are so prone to grievance thinking? I don't know, man. I wish I did know. I don't know. I mean... There have been books written about it. There will probably likely be a lot more books written about it. You know, I left Mississippi for a while. I got away from some of these things. And when I stood back from it, it really helped me kind of consider things, you know. And I think grow as a person intellectually the way I considered the things I'd been taught and overheard my entire life, which I suddenly realized I don't know about that. I wonder how much this being rooted into a certain place where this is the language of it from one generation to the next, what effect that has on it too. Because quite honestly, not everybody gets to ever go anywhere else and do anything else or by by choice or not, you know. I've been having this conversation with other parents who have kids going to college. My daughter's going to college. Several times we said, you know, it'd just be great if they would just get out of here. Even if they just go two states over just to meet some different people and hear some different things and just consider things from a different perspective. And I I wonder how much that has to do with it, you know, because I think Southerners are rooted to place in a way, probably not most parts of the country are. I don't know whether that's true or not, really. It's just kind of the assumptions I make on things I've read and heard over, over the years. And when you are stuck in one place, 
and you hear the same voices and same things and same attitudes your whole life, of course you're going to continue to be susceptible to those things and believe in a certain way and react to whatever it is in a very simple and certain way. You know, Mark Twain has this quote that I love. He said, travel is the poison to bigotry and prejudice. And I thought that is so wonderfully put, because if you ever go anywhere else and do anything else out of your comfort zone, it's going to affect you positively, I think. And it will shred away at your at your bigotry and your prejudice and the things you are standing in the middle of or either been you know, talked to about or just things you hear. That's my nutshell answer. That's another podcast altogether with <laughs> people smarter than me. <laughs> Elzer is searching for a place called the bottom. And I started thinking, I said, man, bottom means a whole lot of different things. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Well, I had to name it something, you know. I mean, I've seen other things called the bottoms yeah. like that. And, yeah. and it can have so many different connotations. I mean, it, yeah. you know, it can be a bad thing. But bottom land is good land that's right. uh, that you can use and, and farm very right. easily. Yeah, that's, there's some good dirt in bottom land. Well, I knew we were going into kind of a sunken terrain. You know what I mean? When I imagine mm-hmm. that fortress and that place way off in the middle of wherever, I did imagine it down, you know, that was susceptible to water and swamp and all this and that and the other. So the bottom just kind of, there was actually, when I was in high school and all of our back road riding around down in Pike County, Mississippi, there was this place called Martin's Bottom where we would sometimes land at night. I couldn't tell you how to get there, man, anything like that. All I know is it was really dark out there and it was really soggy. And most of the time it was almost completely covered. It was almost like a pond. It wasn't a pond, but it was almost kind of like that, you know, and we would just kind of go out there and sit and park on the side of it or, or whatever. So that was kind of in the back of my mind, too. But I knew the bottom, this place and this structure was going to be kind of a descent, which kind of fell in line with the story and the way things were going. So I thought it worked on a very physical level. And I also thought it worked on a kind of a soulful level and thematic level, too. I'm not really one for symbolism much, but I, when I thought of the name at the bottom, I'm like, okay, sure, of course. You're amazing if you get out of that place. <laughs> you are amazing if you get out of that place. Yeah. <laughs> kind of made me think <laughs> a little bit of the, the Pirates of the Mississippi and uh, what a band of horrible cutthroats they were on the river back in the 1840s and 50s. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, you get the sense that they were probably familiar with the bottom. You know, we we're talking beforehand the pandemic, we spoke before, right when Blackwood came out, and we didn't get to speak about Nick. How do you think that affected your work and the way you approach your work? The pandemic? Yeah. Uh, well, I think like most everybody else, I sat around in a daze for a while. Didn't want to write. Didn't want to read. Things were really bleak and depressing. It's hard to create that way. You know, I would say, I think, you know, I think Salvage's World is a product of me eventually coming back around. And, you know, I wrote it in 21, so we were still very much in it. And that's after, you know, months and months of lockdown and people dying and all the arguments and all that. I think it affected my work and then I realized you got to keep going, you know. That's typically the conversation you have with yourself between any project. But this was, it was different in a way where I thought, if you don't keep going, you're never going to get out of this. And I don't mean like out of the pandemic, but like out of the 
the frame of mind I was in and out of the mood I was in and the things you think about and the things that occupy your thoughts and your time. And, you know, so, yeah, I, it was my way of being hopeful, I think, working. I wouldn't say it impacted me very much in terms of like habit because I've always I'm always pretty habitual in the way I go about things. And I always work steadily and consistently uh, when I have something going. And I, and I love that. You know, I love that part of the day. But I do think probably that there are, you know, the elements you see and the voices and maybe some of the themes and things like that, which are for other people to decide what those are really, are clearly a result of me having written this on the back end of the pandemic or even still in it, you know, really. Um, I think the, the whole year I wrote this, children were still in doing online school. Like we weren't back in school yet, so it'd be impossible, I think, to say it's not affected by it. Anybody who produced anything during that time was clearly had something else going on in their head because the, the world was in a different place. Once again, kind of my art kind of saved me in some way. You know, it gave me a purpose because that was something, too, that was hard to find during those really long months of purpose, you know. It gave me a purpose to get up and go. And the the notion that you just keep working because at some point you'll be sitting with Stephen again in front of a microphone face-to-face, you know, and here we are. Because that's what your work is all about. Because I always here. think about you when I'm working. <laughs> <laughs> but I was just thinking, you know, like the sense of isolation we got when everyone was kind of sheltering in place there for a bit, not being around other people, and kind of this, you know, we everyone was kind of on this defensive posture for a while. And that seems that suits a lot of your characters really well, too. These people are isolated in so many ways, and they have a tremendous amount of defense set up when they're in these books. Yeah, that's a good point. I think Wade in particular is really symbolic of this. He's very isolated and he's very stagnated too, just almost at a, like the pause button in his life, which causes a problem when he has to react again. You know, it takes him a minute to find the right motivation that he needs to act and move. You know, I would even say I think the landscape too, you know, the crops that won't grow anymore, just the stunted nature of landscape and character both probably or something that you know, came from that, those feelings. So how do you keep yourself from being stunted and stuck in a place? Oh, man, I don't know. You just, the thing I try to do is realize that I can't control hardly anything. The one thing I can't control is me sitting down and working, you know. I can control my output, my process. And when you commit to things like that, the other things tend to fall in line, like your imagination, and the story that unravels. It's just motion, I think, you know. There are a lot of frustrating things about doing what, you know, I do or we do. The one thing that uh, I can count on is that I can sit down and try to be great every time I sit down, and nobody can stop me from doing that. Nobody can keep me from doing that, you know. Even if there were a million bad reviews hanging out there of the last word I wrote, nobody can keep me from sitting down tomorrow and doing it again. And quite honestly, that's the thing I think that keeps me healthy mentally, you know, spiritually. My wife and children always know when I'm not working because I'm harder to live with and I'm anxious and, I'm, you know, get ill-tempered real easy. So it's like my way of reaching out to the universe some way. And the one way that I know I have some type of power, and that's not an easy thing to find in this world, any moment where you actually have some power and things can, you can control that that moment. But my work is that way and it feeds that side of me. 
which I think I need. I need to see things growing. My pet theory of, you know, motion is what everything is about. Yeah. And, you know, kind of the purpose of life is taking something from one place to another. Yeah, I agree. And I mean, this, this sounds ridiculous, but I'm telling you, like, one of the things I really love about doing this is I know that when I get out of my Jeep in the morning and I walk into my studio, I know that when I come out, something's going to exist that didn't exist before. That's a cool feeling to me, you know, and that excites me about going and doing it. I don't know if it's any good or not, but something will exist that was not there when I walked in. And I really like that. We weren't made to sit around, you know. We were made to grow and mature and evolve, whether it be through physical motion or emotionally or spiritually or intellectually. Doing, I think, takes care of a lot of ills, you know. Creating fills all those needs for me. Well, since you turned this book in almost a year and a half ago, what's what's going on right now in the typewriter? I have had one of those images. I'm thinking about it really hard. I might have a couple pages but right now, I'm pretty interested and excited about um, some of the film stuff. Rumble Through the Dark comes out probably toward the end of the summer, the screen adaptation of The Fighter. And then um, Desperation Row, we filmed it last fall. It should probably be out next spring or early summer. And, like, I wrote the adaptations to both of those, so which I've enjoyed doing. So kind of um, one of the gifts of that is, like, I've gotten, you know, some script opportunities and the ability to do some of those things, which I, I kind of like. I kind of like doing both things, you know. It's storytelling, but in different ways, and it gives me a chance to break it up a little bit and do different things. So there's some script stuff going on, and just kind of being involved in a movie and how it gets made, which I still don't know how it gets made. I'll never really understand how any indie movie gets made. It's kind of a miracle. Every time's different. But, um, you know, I'll be writing a novel, and I'll be writing... Uh, a script and uh we'll just keep trucking you know keep moving so how is it for you writing a script when you had to concentrate on the dialogue so much oh it doesn't bother me it's cool man i can gobble up some pages with dialogue especially when you have characters you like i think it's kind of the opposite effect of writing prose where i think my dialogue is pretty sparse i would say it's pretty sparse in scripts too but you know Scripts have got to move. You know, we're talking about movement again. There's a thumpity thump. There's a rhythm to it. Even the moments that are really more important and maybe take a little longer where you kind of sink into, the thing is just, you know, rolling. So you don't really have a lot of time to, uh, as much as I love describing a landscape and a sunset in about three paragraphs in a novel, I get three sentences in a script. It's the, really the same rules. When people say something, it's got to drive the story forward and it's got to matter can't be any chit chat you know so it's okay it's good too and it, it's kind of uh, interesting to have an actor in your mind and imagine sometimes it works out that way but n never really but i think it's cool to have a visualization of who's going to be delivering this when you're creating that dialogue because you get a sense of mannerism and movement and things like that when we were talking about motion earlier and then you said the word emotion i'd never thought about the word motion being in that word that and how you know, if someone has no emotions, there's no change. There's no difference in mm -hmm. them. And it's the change and it's the difference that what emotions are in ourselves. That's very true. And I think our emotions do set us in motion, you know. Okay, um, Billy Squire. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'll take it. Uh, <laughs> yeah, man, it's a constant roller coaster, you know, up and down. Sacrifice, recovery, joy, pain, whatever. 
but you can't let it lock you down. It's something we all battle, something we all fight with. Um, but just trying to stay, stay afloat, you know, a little dust particle in the air, doing something. I mean, even those are doing something. They're moving, right? Well, at least we're not in the bottom. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Michael, I want to thank you so much for coming back to Book Talk. It's a pleasure to see you and to talk with you again. You too, Stephen. Thanks a lot. Michael Ferris-Smith is the author of Salvage This World, which is published by Little Brown. I'm Stephen Usry, and this is Book Talk. Thank you for joining us today. Book Talk is produced in the studios of FM 89.3 WYPL Memphis, a service of the Memphis Public Library, a division of the City of Memphis. Book Talk is copyrighted by the Memphis Public Library, all rights reserved.